Uh, Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to take a break from Hebrews for a month as we work on the Bold Faith Initiative together. I knew this was coming since last October. I knew when it got here I wouldn't want to do it. I didn't know that we would be at this passage. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Controversial, hard to listen to. And so we're going to preach on this one and then stop. And we'll come back to it a month later. Let me read for us verses 4 through 12. Ephesians, or Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Verses 4 through 6 clearly state that it is possible for a person to fall away in such a fashion that he or she is beyond recovery. No one disputes that. But the question everyone wants answered is this. Is the person in danger of an irrecoverable fall a true believer or only someone who's been around the faith, understands the faith, but has never truly committed himself or herself to Christ? In answering that question, there's been a lot of dispute. And sometimes people dispute angrily about it. I need to take a moment to address that because if, if we don't, that question will haunt the rest of our time together like some moldering theological specter. According to one answer, any Christian can apostatize from the faith and lose his salvation. It could happen to those of us in this room. Even St. Paul himself thought it possible that after preaching to others, he himself might be a castaway. Others disagree and say that those in danger of falling away are not real Christians at all. They've been attracted to Christ and his people. They've shared in the life of the church, perhaps even taught a Sunday school class. But they've never truly believed in Jesus. Though their fellow church members don't realize it, and maybe they're not even fully aware of it, they've held back from giving themselves to the Lord. They're counterfeit. They look like the real thing, 
but they're not. According to these folks, a real Christian cannot experience an irrecoverable fall. After all, doesn't Jesus say, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So both sides come to this passage in Hebrews with their theological assumptions firmly in place. Now that's to be expected. Everyone interprets scripture through a theological framework. Some good theological framework, some not so good. But sometimes the theological framework itself can block our view. I think that happens when people approach this passage. Not because the theological framework is faulty, but because it leads them to find answers in the text to a question the author has not asked and had no intention of answering. The question most people bring to this passage is abstract. Is this person who falls away and cannot be restored a real Christian? Or is he a pseudo-Christian? We want to know if a real Christian can lose his salvation because if that's true, we might lose ours. And people we love might lose theirs. Now, as you've probably guessed, I have some problems with coming to our passage in this way. For one thing, it approaches the text as if the inspired author was treating a theological subject abstractly rather than real people concretely. If we do that, we are almost guaranteed to read meanings into the text that aren't there. In 1963, Peter, Paul, and Mary had a huge hit, Puff the Magic Dragon. When I was younger, it was popular to say that the song was really about drugs. The Magic Dragon was marijuana, and to puff the magic dragon was to smoke weed. And after all, lots of songwriters were hiding messages in their songs back then. Now fast forward 35 years. Peter, Paul, and Mary have taken their reunion tour on the road. At every concert, late in the concert, they lead everyone in singing Puff the Magic Dragon. One night, Peter Yarrow prefaces the song with this comment. Many people thought this song was about drugs, but it never was. It was a simple song about a boy and his dragon and the sorrows of leaving boyhood. I know. He would know. He wrote it. We can do something just like that with this passage and import ideas into it that aren't really there. But there's another problem irrespective of this particular text, with the question we want answered. When we ask if a Christian can lose his salvation, we've smuggled in a word that most biblical writers never use. The Greek word Christanos is only used three times in the entire Bible, and just by two writers. And two of those three times come in historical reports of what outsiders were saying about Jesus' followers. Many scholars believe that the word Christian was originally a nickname. In fact, a term of contempt, a diss. Only one biblical author ever uses the word directly, and that's in the context of suffering for being one of those contemptible Christians. So when we insert the word Christian into the question, can a real Christian lose his salvation? We've already departed from biblical usage. What is a real Christian? The Bible talks a great deal about disciples. It explains clearly what it means to follow Jesus. It describes what it is to be a believer. But it doesn't bother at all with the word Christian. 
So the question, can a real Christian lose his salvation, is unhelpful until you identify what you mean by a real Christian, which is something the Bible never does. The other important noun in that question, can a Christian lose his salvation, is also problematic. What do we mean by that rich word, salvation? In the Bible, the idea of salvation is presented in three tenses. There is the past tense. We were saved by Christ when he died for us on the cross. There's a present tense. We are being saved right now from our sins and our fears. And there's a future tense. We will be saved from evil, from sorrow and death when Christ returns. So the question, can a Christian lose his salvation, requires that we ask a further question. Are we talking about past salvation, present salvation, or future salvation? When the author of Hebrews uses the word salvation or the verb save, he's usually thinking about the future. He is looking forward to the day when Christ will finally and completely deliver his people from the experience of sin and death. So if you asked him that question, can a real Christian lose his salvation? I suspect he'd be puzzled. He'd say something like, well, he hasn't received it yet, at least not completely. So how can he lose it? Another thing, and I think this is the biggest problem in asking this question of this text. We turn a personal warning into an impersonal debate. Let me state this as clearly as I can. The real question here is not, might a true Christian fall away? But might I fall away? Our author is not interested in the abstract, but in the concrete. He doesn't care about imaginary Christians. He cares about real ones. He cares about us. All right, as we prepare to dig into this text, it's clear that those who are in danger of a hopeless apostasy are those who are, verse 1, not going on to maturity. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, am I going on? And we should be encouraging each other to do so. Now, verse 4. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Stop there for just a moment. Down in chapter 10, verse 32, our author uses the same word translated in Latin, enlightened, same tense, voice, and mood in Greek. Same word to describe the recipients of this letter, these Hebrews. Clearly, these are the ones with whom he's concerned. It's hard to overemphasize that point. The warnings in Hebrews in general, and in this passage in particular, were not written for someone the author didn't know. He wasn't engaging in theological conjecture about hypothetical people. He was writing to people he cared about, people who appeared to, at least some of them, to have stopped going on and were therefore in danger of falling away. Those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, the traditional way of taking this passage is 
built around identifying those persons who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become a sharer or a partner in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age. So the question becomes, is this person really a Christian or is he just keeping company with Christians? Is he saved or does he falsely assume that he's saved? Well, since I don't believe that our author intended us to ask that question and certainly didn't intend to answer it, I would suggest, and in most circles it's almost heresy even to suggest it, no matter what your theological persuasion, but I would suggest the question is not helpful. We shouldn't bother with it. It doesn't make any difference. I know how people respond to that. It doesn't make any difference? I don't think it does. Not in practice anyway. You see, one side describes the person who falls away as a failed believer. And the other side describes the same person as a false believer. But either way, both sides agree that he's in mortal danger. If you're the person they're talking about, you're in trouble. The question is not, can a saved person lose his salvation, but can this person, better yet, can I, fall away? And the answer is, if you don't go on, then you, whether you're a church member or not, baptized or not, take communion or not, or a Sunday school teacher, deacon, elder, or pastor, if you don't go on, then you are the person who can fall away. Are you going on? That's the critical issue. Who do you think is more likely to fall down? A bicyclist who's pedaling and moving forward or a bicyclist who's stationary and standing on the pedals? If you try to stand on a bicycle, you're going to have to do some kind of balancing act. And sooner or later, you'll fall, no matter how well you can balance. It's the same way in the life of a Christ follower. Stop going on, try to stand still, and you'll have to do some kind of balancing act. And sooner or later, you'll fall away. It's more comfortable, isn't it, to deal with this in the abstract with a make-believe person whose spiritual status we can debate. But our author isn't writing to make-believe people, but to real ones, to people just like us. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, to us. We're only safe as we're going on. How can I know if I'm going on? Or if I am one who's in danger? Verses 7 and 8 give us some things to look for. Verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Our lives are here being compared to a farmer's field that receives rain, which in the Bible is almost always a sign of God's kindness and of his blessing. And either produces a useful crop or produces useless thorns and thistles. We, like the field in this analogy, receive God's kindness and blessing. And in the context, hearing his word is particularly in mind. But what is that blessing, particularly his word, producing in our lives? Is it something useful to God that blesses his people? Or something useless to God that wounds his people. 
The verb the NIV translates produces in verse 7 is an interesting one. Every other time it's used in the New Testament, it refers to a woman giving birth. That should remind us that while producing fruit is the most natural thing in the world for a Christ follower, it isn't painless. Producing babies is a natural thing too. But ask any mother if it's painless. Land that produces a useful crop receives God's blessing. And so does the Christ follower whose life produces fruit to God. But land that produces only thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed. Literally, it's the curse is near. Idea it's hanging over this person. And the end result is destruction. No one could accuse our author of preaching a feel-good Christianity. But that's because he knows that a Christian can only really feel good when he's going on. I suspect our author wouldn't be much in demand as a motivational speaker these days. He's too direct. He doesn't pull any punches. He sees a danger that only a fool would ignore, and he's no fool. And yet, he sees reason to be hopeful as well. Look at verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, it's literally beloved. Even though we speak like this, beloved, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. Verse 10 mentions some of those things. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. Here are things that accompany salvation. Work done for God and love shown to him. Work and love expressed through service to God's people. These are the crops that grow in the good field. Mentioned in verse 7. The service offered God's people can take a lot of different forms. It may take the form of friendship and hospitality. It may be financial aid. It may be Christian teaching, encouragement, or even rebuke. It may be, and it will be, prayer. It can take the form of manual labor, helping a brother or sister move, rototilling a garden, landscaping the church grounds. It may take the form of a phone call, dinner out or dinner in, opening your home for a Super Bowl party. It may take the form of serving in the nursery or teaching a Sunday school class or driving the church bus. It may take many different forms, but it will take some form in the lives of those who are going on. If we don't see this work and love toward God expressed in service to his people, that's a sign that we're not going forward. Notice that the object of the love mentioned in verse 10 is not, directly anyway, the people being served, but God himself. We show him love by helping his people. That's important. If our motive in helping others is solely their benefit, their growth, or even their appreciation, what happens when they don't benefit or grow or appreciate? We stop helping. That's what happens. We must learn to come to people by way of God. 
We give because he's given to us. We sacrifice because we're the recipients of sacrifice. We love not in order to be loved, but because we're already loved. Christ's people never have one-on-one relationships. They have one-through-one relationships. All our relationships, not just our relationship with God, must be mediated through Christ. We come to each other, not just to God, through him. The things that accompany salvation were present among the Hebrews. They worked and loved and helped. And our author wanted them to continue doing so. Verse 11 now. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Hope is one of the three great Christian virtues. Someone has said human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air. But they can't live for four seconds without hope. Our author wants his readers to enjoy that hope. But he knows that they can't manufacture it on their own. Hard work will not produce hope, although hope will produce hard work. Hope comes from God's grace, not our labors. We don't make it. We receive it. But here's the thing. God designed us so that our hope receptors only function properly when we are working, loving, and helping. It is the diligent alone who live in hope. So our author puts it plainly to his readers, verse 12. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That word lazy is the clue that this section, which began in chapter 5, verse 11, is wrapping up. Our author used the same word there when he wrote that the Hebrews were slow to learn, or literally, that they were lazy to hear. He's done his best to warn them. He said the hard stuff. He's warned those who are idle, encouraged the timid, helped the weak, been patient with everyone. But he's not only warned them, he's warned us. Consider yourself warned. Go on or be in danger of falling away. No, I don't want to end there. I want to remind us of verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. I suspect our author, so steeped in the Old Testament, was thinking of the book of Genesis and the story of creation. In creation, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now God has taken upon himself a new creation. Out of the travail of his soul, he sees it and is satisfied. Someday we will stand before him. And if we've been diligent, we will hear his blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's joy.
by the grace of God, we can be the ones who receive that blessing. Now let's bow our heads. I'm going to give us a couple moments just to reflect on what we've heard and pray. If the Lord's been speaking to you this morning, would you speak back to him and hear what he has to say? God, I pray that you will so work in our hearts that when we fall down, we get back up. And that when we get tired, we go on. And that when we see our brother or sister tired, we give them a hand. Lord, I don't just ask that you take us to the very end with you but that you take us all together. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together. Give me one the pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. Know and follow hard after you. Give me one the pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent. Give me one glorious ambition for my life To know and follow hard after you To know and follow hard after you To grow as your disciple in your truth This world is empty, pale, and poor Compared to knowing you, my Lord and I will run after you. Lead me on, and I will run after you. To know and follow hard after you. To grow as your disciple in your truth. This world is empty, pale, and poor compared to knowing you, my Lord.